because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Some of you may notice something different, which is that you can actually see me as well as you can probably see Don Watkins and Stefan Henna. We are doing a video Power Hour for the first time in several years. I Hope it's something you like. If it is or if it isn't, let me know at alex at alexepstein.com so I know whether we should uh, do this again. So, well, let me just say hi to you guys. Hey, Don. Hey, Stefan. Hello. Hey, everyone. Don, you, I haven't seen you in forever. You have a, a beard now. You look like a guest on the Joe Rogan show. <laughs> That's the dream. Yeah. You're ready to go live in the mountains in this in this time of forced isolation. Um, okay, so speaking of forced isolation, uh, the big topic this week is going to continue to be COVID-19, although we'll talk a lot about the different energy uh, aspects of it. So just to give you an arc of what we're gonna cover, we're gonna cover a couple of big points about COVID-19, uh, just that as its own issue, and what, how the thinking about that is and what the policy should be and why we're focusing on it because we're primarily energy people. And then we'll talk more about the uh, energy implications and the energy policies uh, connected to it. But uh, yeah, I, I really want to focus a lot on just the policy in general. And so the first, you know, the first segment or the first topic is how bad thinking methods are influencing COVID-19 predictions and policy. And some people have asked, they've seen, I've done some TV appearances in the last week. I've been commenting on this. I've been asking a lot of questions on Twitter and Facebook. And sometimes people have legitimately said, hey, why are you focused on this issue? Don't you have stuff in energy to do? There's a lot of stuff in energy uh, to do. And you are not an expert on epidemiology or viruses or infectious diseases more broadly. And that is uh, absolutely true. So why get involved in this. And, and I think I can boil down my reasons to three words, all of which begin with F. Flourishing, freedom, and framework. And I think framework will be the most interesting. But just to address flourishing and freedom first, you know, my, the core idea of my work is this idea of human flourishing, human beings living to their full potential, both their material, physical potential, but also their uh, mental potential. And uh, fundamental precondition of flourishing is is freedom. We can only flourish to the extent that we are are free to think, and then to act uh, on our best thinking. And I have a whole talk you can look it up on YouTube. It's called the F word, and it's about how freedom is fundamental to flourishing. And what we're seeing right now in this country is just a tremendous decrease in the amount of flourishing and a tremendous decrease in the amount of uh, freedom that are very, very related. Now, the part of the context for this is, is a very scary virus, which I'll be talking more about. But as I pointed out in last week's show, and is worth pointing out again, there's been very little concern for the massive decline in freedom involved in these, uh, in these indefinite universal lockdowns, or sometimes I'll call it indefinite universal isolation. There's been very little concern for the deprivation of freedom involved and then how that lack of freedom has, particularly our freedom to interact with one another, has just completely wrecked the productivity of most people in this country and is just leading to a mass decline in flourishing. And I'll talk more about that. 
but it's it's really important that people are not focused on it very much. They're focused on the virus, and that's an important thing to focus on. But the the supposed cure for the virus has been so massively destructive, and I don't think that that's been there's been nearly enough concern about that and about the really hundreds of millions of people who are negatively affected by that, who there's a strong argument they themselves wouldn't be all that strongly affected by the virus. We can talk uh, about that. But so there's that flourishing aspect. And then there's the threat of far greater curtailments of freedom going forward, not just indefinite lockdowns, but uh, the government really taking over more and more uh, of our lives and specifically our economic lives, our right to produce and trade and more broadly to interact with one another. There's all, you know, and in history often a crisis precipitates a dramatic government intrusion in our lives and a dramatic decrease in freedom. So I see the moment we're at as a very potentially decisive moment. It is a decisive moment, but a potentially really terrible moment, not just for the suffering now, but for the destruction of freedom going forward. Many people have the narrative that freedom is what has failed. And so more government control is the solution. And I, I believe that's fundamentally wrong. And, and certainly any time that the fundamental freedom of this country is at stake, that just as a citizen, I want to, to stand up and to say whatever I can and think through the issue, but make the case for freedom in whatever way uh, is, is actually like the true application of freedom. Doesn't mean the government doesn't get involved, but it means that fundamentally we need to be free to live our lives and, and to act and not be controlled by government. So that's the flourishing and the freedom element of things. But the thing I really want to focus on and why I think I have something to say here, even though the specifics are not my area of expertise, is this issue of uh, framework. And let me just for those, I mean, many of you watching this will be familiar with my work, probably my book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and more broadly uh, known as somebody who tries to think about energy and environmental issues in what you can think of as a, as a big picture and pro-human way. And I'm, I'm very um, focused on what, if we look at all the benefits and side effects of different energy sources or different options, what's actually the best for human flourishing uh, going forward. And one thing I've noticed in my research is that it's very often true that the designated experts in our society make radically wrong predictions about fossil fuels, but also more broadly other aspects of industry. And then they make catastrophic, uh, they, they prescribe catastrophic policies. So there's a very strong historical trend of declaring a false or exaggerated catastrophe and then advocating for truly catastrophic policies in response. And often the narrative is if we leave people free, they're going to cause a catastrophe. So we need to prevent them from being free and solve the catastrophe. Whereas usually the preventing people from being free would actually cause the catastrophe. So one, I think very glaring example of this is in the late 60s and early 70s, there was a narrative supposedly determined by all the the uh, leading experts that we were going, if, if people were left free, they were going to deplete the earth of resources. And I, I talk about this a lot in chapter one of the moral case for fossil fuels, which you can get for free online. And there is this idea that, oh, the earth's resources are finite. We're using them quickly. We're going to run out. Everyone's going to 
fall off a cliff and starve. Therefore, the government has to radically restrict production, including the use of fossil fuels, but really including the use of everything. And what actually happened is we didn't run out of resources. It turned out as certain thinkers like Ayn Rand and later Julian Simon argued, uh, resources are effectively unlimited because resources are just matter and energy reshaped by the human mind for in useful form. And so we have an unlimited ability to create them. And so from the 70s forward, we created more and consumed more and more and more resources. And yet we became wealthier because we were substantially free. And places like China and India went from desperate poverty to much, much higher uh, life expectancies, standards of living. And had we followed the recommendations of the catastrophists, we would have been in huge, I mean, th that, that increase in life expectancy definitely would not have happened. And it's very possible that life would have gotten even worse overall, let alone the lack of, of progress. So part of the, the context that I'm bringing to this issue is I have studied a lot the history of supposedly expert catastrophe predictions uh, leading to actually catastrophic uh, prescriptions. Now, it doesn't mean that anytime the supposed experts say that there's some catastrophe or some big problem, that means it's false. It can't mean that. But it means that it's, that is a possibility in, the, in what I would call our knowledge system. And, and whatever, whatever the mechanisms are by which we interface, by which people are selected as experts, and, and by which they deliver us knowledge. This involves research and universities and government and institutions like the New York Times. However that system works, it's clearly very possible for it to claim a false catastrophe or predict a false catastrophe and then make and actually then actually make catastrophic recommendations or policies. So that's something I'm always on the lookout. I don't know that it'll be the case, but I know that it's very possible. And one thing I am I, aware of is what causes these false predictions and, and catastrophic policies. And I think fundamentally, you can think of it as bad thinking methods. There's something wrong with even the way very smart and specialized people are processing the data, processing information, where they can come up with a very wrong prediction or a very bad uh, policy. So it's, it's the thinking methods. Even really smart people with bad thinking methods can go way off course. And in fact, they can go more off course than bright people, uh, than, than dumb people with, uh, with uh, bad thinking methods. I mean, historically, uh, I mean, Stefan knows this above all because he's in Germany, but I mean, you have Germany, the land of poets and philosophers, you know, elects the Nazi party by a plurality with the endorsement of leading intellectuals. So it's really pol uh, possible for smart people to go way off course. And then there's a question, well, what leads to bad thinking methods? And I'm gonna connect this now to the COVID stuff. And I would describe it as, as your framework. So the framework I think of as the starting structure of your thinking. And in particular, the framework is what assumptions do you have that may not be true? And then what values might you have that may not be pro-human or good in the eyes of the people that you're talking to? And when I've been looking at these COVID claims, the catastrophe claims, and the prescriptions, I've noticed a bunch of assumptions and a bunch of value claims or values, uh, or at least value premises that are very disturbing to me. So I just want to point out some of them, and then I'm curious with Don and Stefan what you guys have noticed. And I just want to emphasize, I do, from everything I've seen, I do think this is a very serious problem. I think it, it very likely will even have tragic level uh, consequences. And it is something I'm actively concerned about. And I have, I mean, I'm on California lockdown, but even before that, and even 
whatever that is, I've been voluntarily quite a bit changing my behavior because I think it's worth it to do so given the knowledge that we have. But it's really important. There's a difference between something that has tragic consequences and something that's a catastrophe that in any way warrants uh, stopping the productive lives of hundreds of millions of people and even billions of people around the world. So it's really important if there are dynamics that lead to dramatically exaggerated predictions that we be uh, aware of them. And so here's what I've, I've noticed in reading a lot of the mainstream things and including some of the popular long articles. And in particular, there's a guy named uh, Tomas Pueyo. I don't know if that's the proper pronunciation, but it's a very smart and influential guy in the tech industry who's written two very influential pieces on Medium. And, and I think those are fundamentally misguided by some of the things I'm going to be talking about. And a lot of the analysis that's like that, I think, is fundamentally misguided. That's not to say that all the data is wrong, all the analysis is wrong, that the people have bad intentions, but I think that the assumptions and values are very uh, off. So, and I'll, I'll probably say more about this later, but I just want to give you an overview because I think you'll be able to recognize these things. And so the, the first thing in terms of assumptions is there, the, if you look at how things are being, predictions are being made, and particular, in particular how models are being made, the behavior of free human beings is being modeled as mindless or stagnant. When, and, and I'll break this down, but when it comes to both avoiding COVID-19 and when it comes to treating uh, COVID-19. So I, I, my shorthand for this is mindless models. And this has a real history in terms of experts making wrong predictions where they'll make models. But one of the things is they don't model the positives of human ingenuity properly. And then they also don't model in particular the positives of human ingenuity in negating negatives. So people will say, oh, pollution is going to go out of control and we won't be able to do anything or a certain thing will change in climate and everyone will die. And yet what actually happens is human beings are continuously adapting to nature, to their surroundings, and even mastering them through their intelligence. But it's a very common phenomenon to take some trend and to just say, oh, this is a negative trend. Human beings will not adapt to or master the situation. They'll just mindlessly go like lemmings. And I think if you look at the different kinds of models that, that people are using, there's, this, there's not anywhere near a sufficient accounting for human ingenuity and human uh, adaptation. So um, one example of this, uh, so one broad example of this is there's this variable R in the different models which relate to how, how many people do you pass an infection onto or, or a virus onto. And uh, the idea is you don't, if it's above one, then you get a certain kind of exponential growth and you don't want that. And there's an, a, there's an R value usually like 2.3 or 2.5. But what's interesting is over time, it's assumed that people will continue to pass on the virus at that rate, even if it's causing disastrous consequences. Whereas logically, even what we're seeing so far is people are dramatically voluntarily changing their behavior once they're aware of the virus. And imagine that it was on the more bad side of plausible things, then they would do that even more. And yet people have all these scenarios which say, oh, well, it's all going to go out of control and it's just going to keep rising exponentially, et cetera, et cetera. But they're not accounting for human adaptation. They're treating human beings uh, as mindless. Another example of this is with the ability of hospitals to adapt. You'll see this, this, um, you know, this idea of flatten the curve. So the curve is like this, and then there's a line, 
that's hospital capacity. And so you don't want the curve to go way above the line. You want to flatten it. But usually the, the hospital capacity is viewed as fairly flat or it just rises a little bit. But I think there's a lot of reason to believe that that kind of thing could rise quite a bit, particularly if you just think about smart individuals at every stage of things like diagnosis, early recommendations, treatment, like them thinking about things more intelligently, that can make a big difference. And you don't see that significantly uh, accounted for. Uh, a big thing that relates to both the, uh, I think, evasion or ignorance of human ingenuity, but also relates to values, is that the models I've seen do not, uh, they do not allow for a very rational thing, which is selective isolation based on risk profile. So you'll see people talk about uh, these, what was I gonna say, I lost my, my train of thought. For a second, oh, you have all these kind of catastrophe scenarios where it's saying, oh, well, this many people are gonna get it and it's gonna use this many hospital resources and it's gonna be this disaster. And yet logically, people who are more at risk will have a tendency to self-isolate. And those are also the people who need the most hospital resources. So if, to the extent those people avoid getting it, they avoid using those resources early on and it dramatically, dramatically changes the curve. And yet the way, the, the way these things are, are created, it's, it's acting as if we are all a uniform population. And so there's just this question of an R for everybody versus um, making clear, oh, wait, no, the portion of the population that's most vulnerable, they can selectively isolate. That makes a lot of sense morally and practically would radically change this. And yet the models don't account for that kind of very intelligent and I believe very moral uh, adaptation. Let me just see if there's any um, uh, others. I mean, there's a lot and I'll talk about different forms of ingenuity as we go. But the broad thing that, that we see is just these models don't really recognize how human beings left free have ingenuity and will exercise a lot of rationality in pursuit of their values. That doesn't mean that they're always going to be totally rational, certainly not as some external person would prescribe, but these dynamics are crucial to uh, recognize. There's one other aspect of it that's related to these, what I would call mindless models, which is often when the models are trying to model lockdowns, they they equate locking individuals down with preventing reckless behavior. It's like, oh, well, if we lock them down, then they're not going to engage in this reckless behavior. They're not going to replicate. And as I'll talk about more later, I don't think that assumption is warranted at all. I think when you irrationally, when you lock people down without a clear explanation, without a definite timetable, they're going to violate that left and right and do lots of irrational things because they won't really have an idea of what does make sense for their lives. So there's this, the models and the discussions around them the, the core is they're treating the free human being as mindless at, versus recognizing that the free human being has this power of rationality and then really trying to appeal to that uh, power. So that's one huge thing. And when you think about, if you're taking, if you're talking about a catastrophe, a catastrophe, I believe probably means a catastrophe for human beings. So if you're, if you're coming up with a projection and you are not taking into account human ingenuity in such a systematic way, you're going to be way off. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no problem. I, I, as again, I suspect there are going to be some significant problems, but the whole way of thinking about it and, and quote unquote experts making these predictions with these fundamentally false assumptions about human nature and human freedom, they're guaranteed to be wrong. 
I've been talking for a while. Do you guys have any thoughts on assumptions that you've seen that make you skeptical of the different predictions? Well, I think one, uh, I don't know if you put this under the category of assumption or value, um, but certainly I think not appreciating the role of production. So here's just one form that it's come out, which is a lot of the discussion has been pitting uh, Main Street versus Wall Street and saying, well, mm -hmm. we shouldn't care about what happens to Wall Street. We should only care about people's lives. And I think if you have uh, the concept of human flourishing and you grasp the role of production, then you grasp the role of, of finance in production. Like you can't, you can't pit those two against each other. If we completely wreck the economy, including the financing for the economy, then health and lives suffer. And just more broadly, and maybe you'll get to this later, I think, um, you know, we've certainly seen some of the more uh, consistent environmentalists explicitly, you know, say things that uh, have a wrong or an anti-human flourishing approach. I think Extinction Rebellion's been sticking up stickers that say, you know, we're the virus, coronavirus is the um, vaccine. But I think more common is just not having explicitly a, a framework and valuing human flourishing on principle and therefore underrating uh, or putting every, the only consideration is sort of saving lives from the virus and then everything else is not considered a legitimate value that has to be integrated towards that. Yeah, I'll definitely talk about that uh, under values. Stefan, did you have anything on the assumptions? Yeah, so connecting to the framework issue, I, I, uh, what I notice is that we are probably engaging, or the, the public discussion is engaging a lot in team play instead of finding the truth. So you see a lot of experts uh, recommending certain things, and then they work their way back, uh, you know, in the narrative to to proclaim what's necessary to have their outcome, uh, their recommended outcome to be true. Um, and so what I see is that we have to be super honest about the information that we do have and uh, their reliability. And we have to be super honest um, to ourselves and in communicating this. And what I don't see is people uh, saying, well, there are certain aspects that we don't know. So there, there are people that are spreading theories and then the media is probably not correctly quoting them or, um, you know, changing the information on the way. And, and so this is very detrimental. So as you mentioned, there are certain variables in the models. And so we will probably, or the government will probably at some point settle on some kind of model to predict things and then, you know, make some measure happen based on that. But it's, in a, in a situation of uncertainty, we certainly need to take that into account and rely on individuals to make their own decisions. So, for example, a very vulnerable population where we have information needs to, you know, isolate itself more than young people who, are, who don't seem to be as affected. And uh, so I think the spread of information and um, contradicting information is a big problem. So we need to... Uh, to improve that framework in the sense of being super honest and finding ways to find out who is super honest, who is acknowledging uncertainties and, uh, you know, going, uh, looking at Europe, which now has uh, the largest number of death uh, globally, 
even higher than, than China. Um, you know, you can certainly make mistakes if you don't acknowledge certain uncertainties and, and uh, you know, communicate what information you really have. Yeah, I think the honesty point is, is really important. And it's, it's actually related to something I've been thinking about with myself is just uh, being aware of confirmation uh, bias. Because I'm, you know, what I've noticed with this issue is I would, I had a sense very early on that the thinking was off and that some of these catastrophe scenarios were off, but it, it took me a little while to wrap my mind around, okay, what is off and what isn't? And what do I know and what do I not? And so I would see articles that were more inclined toward what I intuitively thought. Uh, and I would share them. I'd usually ask, hey, what do people think about them? And this seems intuitively right. But I think I had a little bit too much of an inclination to be, to not be as critical uh, of some of them. And I think it's really important. And, and in part, because I felt like nobody was methodologically doing what I would advocate. And so, I mean, one thing I've decided is, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try to spell out what I think is necessary methodologically and then work with other people on that versus sharing the existing stuff. Because part of sharing other people's applications is I don't know exactly how they're processing the data. Right, I'm going to get into one other assumption issue and then a value issue a little bit more quickly, but just to give you an overview. And then I want to jump into where I think the, the big picture of the plan should be going forward. Because I really think that as a nation, we really need a plan. And I think that the, the human flourishing approach that we take can really inform that plan that, that we take at Center for Industrial Progress and at uh, my, my podcast, on my other podcast as well, the Human Flourishing Project. So one thing I notice about the, the models, and this one I don't have the same level of certainty about, but I'm noticing it. There's definitely something there. So if you can think of the first one as the models have a mindlessness to them. And then I would also say the models have at least, they, at least their, their tendencies to have exaggerated maliciousness. So, so there's mindlessness and then there's exaggerated maliciousness. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that the extremeness of the virus's danger seems to be significantly exaggerated uh, where like, and, and this is in a couple of categories. One is that certain mitigating aspects that are generally applied to viruses tend to be downplayed or considered trivial. And then where the data are ambiguous, there are liberties taken with them that make them seem a lot worse than I think the plausible interpretations are. So in terms of just things that are ignored, for example, there, there's this broad issue of, well, the viruses, at least many viruses, tend to get less severe over time. And the reason is because viruses, if they are less severe, it's easy to pass from one person to another, whereas if the virus kills you instantly, you're not going to be able to pass it on to many people. And yet, I don't see the models taking that seriously. And often people don't even talk about that, but then they'll talk about seemingly much more unlikely negative uh, mutations. Another thing is the models, or at least a lot of the models I'm seeing, don't significantly take into account seasonal decline with certain viruses and even certain coronaviruses has been a a significant thing. So I don't know the magnitude of how significant these are, and I don't know if anyone does, but it's notable that they're uh, left out. Now, in terms of negatively interpreting what data we do have, and there's a whole issue of we need more testing, we need more data, which is going to be the foundation of the plan that I think we should be following as a, as a nation. But you can see with certain uh, the data that we do have, there is just a lot of tendencies to distort it. So the biggest thing I think is the uh, the death rate. 
So you hear these things of the death rate and the death rate is 4%. And so the death rate is a function of, well, how many, how many deaths are caused by COVID-19? And so that's the numerator of the death rate. And then divide, and then how many people have been affected by COVID-19? And that's the denominator. And if you think about the denominator first, the number of people who had it, uh, that is being systematically underestimated because people are equating the people, the case number, the actual number of inf- the, the, the number of diagnosed cases, they're equating that with the actual number of infections, whereas there are definitely more infections than diagnosed cases. And there may be way, way more infections than diagnosed cases. And yet people keep repeating death rates that are literally equating number of cases with number of infections. So that's, of course, going to increase the death rate. And you really need to acknowledge that if you're using these death rates. Um, there's also the issue of what I think it's called comorbidity. So Everyone who's dying of COVID-19, who dies with COVID-19, that doesn't mean they died of COVID-19. And so if they're, you know, they're, they had it and they die, that doesn't mean that they're, that they're dying of that or that they weren't about to die from something else. And so what you really want to see over time, we can't have this now probably as well, but you want to see the overall mortality. How is that affected by COVID-19? Because otherwise you can have someone with three diseases and then you say, oh, well, he died of lung cancer, he died of COVID-19, he died of a regular cold, he died of the flu. There's so both of these factors, and I'm sure many others, are tending to exaggerate the death rate. And it seems like a lot of the public discussions don't seem, care about being too careful about that. So there's, there's this systematic tendency uh, to exaggerate the maliciousness. Now, there may be things that are underestimated that are significant. So I can't say what it actually is, but I know for sure that the mindlessness assumption is leading us to ignore the positive aspects of human ingenuity in a massive way, and that there is this tendency to exaggerate the maliciousness. That certainly occurs in all the environmental false predictions I've seen, where negative changes to our environment, sometimes they don't even end up being negative, but when they are negative, it's viewed as, oh my gosh, this is the end of the world, versus, oh no, this is significant, but it's something that we can manage, or at least manage a lot better than people thought. So those are how assumptions can totally distort the views of experts, and, and in particular, the view of experts that are the designated experts, because we're not, we're not being exposed to everyone who's a specialist in the field. We're being exposed to certain people who have been elevated to positions of thought leadership. And I think there are certain systematic things that lead to the people with more exaggerated negative views to and, and less of an appreciation of human ingenuity or very little appreciation of human ingenuity to be at the kind of top of that uh, food chain and, and for the more extreme negative views to be promoted at, in, at, at, from a lot of our, by a lot of our trusted knowledge sources. Okay, the values point I'll make more quickly because I talked about that a bit last week, but the overall, and Don mentioned it too, but I'd say overall the issue is the value of the livelihoods and values of the young and less vulnerable are treated as trivial. So the value of, you can think of the young and less vulnerable, particularly their livelihood, their work, and then their values, their chosen lives, they're treated as as trivial. And so I just want to give you some examples of this. So one is that if you look at the claims of deaths, it's like coronavirus caused this death. So the deaths of all kinds are treated as equal. And you know whether they cut a life expectancy short by 50 years or 50 days, it's just all treated as, oh, this is death. Whereas I don't think that's rational at all uh, to equate those. Also, the focus on exclusively deaths does not factor in at all 
the quality of life. But if you think about it, the quality of life is the main reason we want to be not dead in the first place. And I'm seeing this where I live in Laguna Beach, you know, older people walking around and in my complex, even somewhere using the swimming pool. Now, I don't think that's maybe well advised, but some people are on the premise, hey, I don't have much longer to live. I can't put my life on hold for 18 months. I want to live. Again, that might be rational or not, or you might think it is in any given circumstance, but notice their priority is on quality of life. Their priority is on what I would call uh, flourishing. And so I think of this overall thing as the whole focus is on non-death, but it's not on living. And my view is if you're focused on human flourishing, you're focused on living. That's what you want to make possible. You want to make it possible for people to truly live in a way that they will find satisfying. And this is what's so wrong about what you heard Andrew Cuomo say was something like, you know, I'll do anything to save a life. But that means I will prevent any number of people living to prevent the deaths of other people. But we all want to be living. So we need to think of policies that allow us to all live as much as is possible. And then there are questions of how do you make those policies? And I'll give some guidance on that. But there needs to be a focus on, on living and not just avoiding death a few days earlier, or even a few years earlier. And if, if you have a nation that doesn't focus on living and value living and flourishing, it's not going to value freedom. But one of the core reasons we value freedom is because it allows us to truly live. All right, let's see any of these others that's uh, important. Uh, I mean, there's the broader points. Oh, well, one is that, another one is that in terms of the devaluing of the lives of most people, when you hear the death rates, they're primarily recorded across all age groups and or all health levels. So it'll be 4% death rate. And I think there are big reasons to think that's hugely exaggerated, but then they're not distinguishing among different uh, groups. And so they're obscuring the fact that they are asking for significant sacrifices from the young and healthy to the uh, older and unhealthy. And you, you can say there are reasons that you want to help them. I, there's certainly reasons I do, but there's just this, I do not think it's at all okay to just devalue the young and healthy and, and, or to, and or to misrepresent the situation that those of us, and I would put myself relatively in that category, that we face. And then a point that Don made and that we've made before is that the whole discussion of the models does, in terms of values, it's not taking into account the value of productivity to living in the full sense and even to avoiding death. Uh, and the idea that you can stop or dramatically diminish the livelihood of tens of millions of people and, and just call that the economy or even call that Wall Street and say, oh, that's not lives. That's a, I view that as a fundamentally anti-living view of life. So you can say it's not exactly anti-human because it's some humans over others, but it's really an anti-living or what Ayn Rand would call like a living death uh, perspective, where you're just sort of worshiping the absence of death versus the living uh, of life. And so I think that all of this is leading to, like we have a situation where all the focus is on how do we avoid the worst case scenario for a the worst case scenario as modeled with these false assumptions uh, on uh, a, you know a specific portion of the population and it's just well if we can come up with a very scary model that says that certain uh, you know older people are going to have their lives cut short by a year or two or three or even you know a month then everyone else everyone else's ability to live 
should be sacrificed, including, by the way, including the ability to live of the elderly, because I don't think of people in collectives. There are a lot of elderly people who, who really do want to live and who would be take, think it's worth taking the risk. And I think we should think of ways as a society to let that happen without letting them necessarily uh, harm others. And that's a whole interesting policy issue. But the, the, So the broadest things are we have these very these this assumption of mindlessness i think that's the fundamental assumption and also this assumption of exaggerated maliciousness of the disease and then values wise we're not valuing living and that is that's leading to this total distortion where the government's saying yeah i'm going to prevent everyone from living in the name of life and that's that is what i think is is uh happening okay so that was the first segment, which lasted way longer than I thought. I obviously had a lot to say about this. You might even have to do this in, uh, in two parts. So I'll check on your guys' availability later this afternoon. But at least on this first hour of Power Hour, let's focus on, um, let's focus on what should be the path forward. Because this, this is something I've been really thinking about. and Because uh, what I see happening right now is, as I put it, the, the, the policy, the view, the way of dealing with a dangerous or deadly virus, the, the method is basically to stop everyone from living. That is the current method. I think that's very just immoral, and I think that cannot be the right solution. So I've been thinking a lot about what is a path forward that allows us to live, but also allows us to effectively fight this virus and, and save as many people as possible. And so I want to share with you that this is my current thinking on what the platform should be. And I'm particularly interested in ideas or additions that people in the audience have. And in particular, if, if you study this issue professionally, definitely that. But even if you've been studying it in depth and you think there are a lot of good examples or you think there are counterpoints that I'm wrong about, I definitely share those to alex at alexepstein.com because I want to write something about this. But it's the kind of thing it needs to be, I'm thinking of it as a skunk works. I'm putting together certain people to do this because I can. I think I can help a lot with the framing of it, with the thinking of it, with the explanation of it. But I need to work with people who have expertise on a lot of the details of it to make sure that I'm getting, at least have the best possible chance of getting those things uh, right. So here's the... I'll take a drink of water in a second uh, and then give it to you and try to give it to you in 15 minutes. But my overall you know, title is Don't Stop Living, Live Smarter. And it's an American path forward on COVID-19. So I want to talk about what does an American path forward on COVID-19 look like? So I'm going to summarize this. It's going to be six steps. I may change the number of steps. And then I will elaborate a little bit on each step. And then if we have time, hopefully you guys can, can chime in. But here are the six steps. So one is acknowledge the difficult reality we are in. Two is recognize that an indefinite universal lockdown is both impractical and immoral. Three, massively increase testing and transparency. Four, liberate American ingenuity to massively increase treatment ability. Five, help the vulnerable minority protect themselves, and six, go back to work with distancing best practices. So acknowledge, one is acknowledge the difficult reality we're in, two is recognize that an indefinite universal lockdown is both impractical and immoral, three is massively increased testing and transparency, and that's the one I'm going to focus on actually. 
along with four, liberate American ingenuity to massively increase treatment ability. And then five is help the vulnerable minority uh, protect themselves. And then six is go back to work. And for that matter, go back to school with distancing uh, best practices. So I think that this is essentially the right policy in a wide range of scenarios about the specifics of the virus. So try to go through this uh, quickly to just give you an overview and then very eager for any feedback or ideas you have uh, about any of these points. So you can send those to alex at alexepstein.com. So the first two I'll try to go through really quickly because I've dealt with some of them already. But number one is acknowledge the difficult reality we're in. So I do think that the growing spread of COVID-19 in the U.S. and around the world is quite possibly the most dangerous infectious disease challenge we've faced since the Spanish flu over 100 years ago. So I'm not certain of that. And there are reasons why it could turn out. There are reasons why I, I don't think we should be nearly as catastrophist as some of these models are saying. But there are a lot of reasons to be seriously concerned. And I'm certainly not going to act like I'm certain that we shouldn't be concerned. So I'm inclined to be uh, quite concerned. And so there's strong reason to think that the worst case scenarios are highly exaggerated. Uh, it may be inevitable that that there's there's tragedy. I think we certainly have to accept, unless you are an expert with a really strong different view, I think you have to accept that as, as a possibility. And we can talk about what could have happened differently in the past, but we're at a situation where we have the spread of this virus and we're really not uh, we really have not been prepared for it in terms of a testing level uh, and a treatment level, and those are uh, and those are facts. And then this this brings us to step two, which is recognize that an indefinite universal lockdown is both impractical and immoral. So anyone who thinks that oh well here's an easy solution, let's just have an indefinite universal lockdown and then we'll just kill the disease and everything will be good, like that is no solution uh, at all. Even though it's been the uh, solution, the attempted solution in effect, which we're seeing just completely uh, fail in terms of human life uh, overall. And so one thing in terms of the practicality is in the United States, an indefinite universal lockdown is not going to work. And I'm glad it's not going to work unless you totally change the character of the country, impose martial law. I don't know where you're going to get those resources from when everyone is poor and not able to produce. But it, the idea that, oh, we can just lock everyone down indefinitely, like that'll work for two weeks, maybe three weeks, not going to work for three months. It's definitely not going to work for 18 months. And many people say 18 months is the, is the period that we need to be really uh, in action. So even if you could supposedly do this in China, that's a good idea. Like you can't do it in the U.S. And more to the point, you should not do it in the U.S. for the reasons that, that I've mentioned. To stop people from interacting, that's a fundamental violation of their freedom to just do that in a universal way that prevents them from pursuing their livelihood. That is so destructive and it's, it's destructive in every aspect of life, including survival itself. I mean, you'll see suicides uh, go up, you'll see poverty go up, you'll see shortages of all, all sorts of things. Um, and there, anyone who has good data on this, by the way, I'm interested in that. There's a lot more to say about this, but I've already talked about it. So I want to focus on the more proactive parts of the plan. So once we recognize, okay, we're in a very difficult uh, you know, a very difficult reality, even if we wish we weren't or we shouldn't have been. Uh, we got to recognize that an indefinite universal lockdown is both impractical and immoral. And step three is then massively increase testing and, uh, and transparency. So that's, this is really the key and it's been talked about, but it hasn't been talked about uh, nearly enough and not in quite the right way. Um, I'm going to run a quick test with you guys. Just 
can you still hear me? Can you guys still hear me? Yeah. Okay, perfect. Um, that my AirPod is having some sort of static and it was just like, it acted like it was about to electrocute me. So I wanted to avoid electrocution while talking about uh, living and avoiding death <laughs> for that matter. So if we think about what's wrong with the case for universal lockdowns, part of it is it's based on the premise that Americans, if left free, will be mindless and inconsiderate. And as I've said before, this is really untrue. It's been demonstrated to be untrue. A lot of us, including I'm sure all of us on this call, have engaged in a lot of voluntary behavior to protect ourselves, but also to protect uh, others and to try to limit the spread of the virus um, as long as we could do it in a kind of cost-effective way. But what's also true is that we could exercise incomparably better judgment if we had more information. And so. The, the foundation of a free people's response to this virus has to be information. How deadly the virus is, how prevalent it is, what available, and, and also, this is a really important one, what are the available treatment capabilities in my area? Because if you knew that, if you could just really have a hot map of who has it, where it is, and what the treatment capabilities are, then you would be in, like, you could act so rationally. And so that's what we should be aspiring to. And I think if we look at the government's failures, I don't want to talk about all the specific things involved, but I think there's been a combination of restrictiveness with regard to testing uh, in terms of preventing private actors from, uh, from testing. And there's definitely been a lot of opaqueness. Like we really don't know what the state of testing is. There hasn't been the transparency. And so I think that government's number one priority should be systematic testing and sharing of precise information with all Americans. And in, it needs to do certain things in terms of its own practices, but one thing it definitely needs to do is it must liberate American ingenuity to work on both developing new types of tests and also the mass production of tests. So that's been happening a little bit, but I've still been seeing there's a lot of restriction going on with the development of tests. And I think it has to be, no, our number one goal is to give all kinds of information. And there's, and I'm interested in what people think about are the most important kinds of tests. I think it's really important to do tests so that we know the actual rate of infection in randomly sampled populations. It will be really valuable if we can understand not just who has it now, but who has had it in the past. That'll teach the, what these kind of, um, uh, these different kinds of tests, including monitoring your antibodies or testing for antibodies in certain in ways. So this is really the systematic and transparent testing. This is the key. So for example, in terms of the government, if there are situations where the government needs to make targeted res uh, responses, and I think if it's using coercion, it needs to be very careful and very clear about the duration. But if it wants to do some kind of tracing like seemed to work well in South Korea, needs information, needs systematic testing and definitely needs uh, transparency. And, but then if you think about what this will do for us uh, as individuals and, um, and organizations, it'll allow us to make very intelligent distancing decisions based on, um, you know, based on where we are and based on how at risk we are in particular. So, so far we have that if we have systematic and transparent testing, it'll enable governments to make targeted responses, and then it'll enable individuals and organizations to make very intelligent distancing uh, decisions. If we really know the specifics of, okay, where is the virus? How dangerous is it? How dangerous is, is it for our specific population? The more precise it is, and that's part of being systematic, just the more intelligent uh, decisions we can make, as well as knowing these things about hospital capacity. And then in terms of if you have systematic and transparent testing, imagine what it does for medical professionals 
uh, making intelligent treatment decisions. It's just, if you think about things like allocating resources, you know, um, where people are most needed, uh, where masks need to go, like the more details we have about things, the more intelligent people, uh, the more intelligence people can exercise. A truly American response is free people exercising their ingenuity to just figure out all kinds of ways to stop this, to avoid this, that some centralized authority is never going to be able to, to figure out but we need information. Right now we're totally handicapped and that's something the government can and must take a leadership role in. And part of that is being very, very transparent. So that's, that's step three. So that is massively increased testing and transparency. And then step four is liberate American ingenuity to massively increase treatment ability. So the greatest asset we have in the fight against COVID-19 is not our ability to enslave people it's human ingenuity, whether in diagnosing, treating, developing drugs to mitigate COVID-19, developing vaccines, shifting resources around, repurposing factories, speedily scaling production. All of these things require human ingenuity. And what that requires above all is freedom. And so the main role government has to play here is to lift the dozens of irrational controls that are inhibiting the medical industry from scaling treatment. And so we don't have that much time, but Don, you, I know you've, you've been sharing with me a couple of examples. What are things that strike you about what government is doing to control production in this realm that it needs to stop doing so that we can liberate human ingenuity? Yeah. I mean, one thing I'll say, first of all, is that things are changing so fast that some things might not be enforced. And in fact, I've been impressed with a number of the regulations that have been rolled back and changed. I've not been impressed by the fact that they were in place. But for example, uh, you know, with testing, initially the government very tightly controlled who could do testing. And that was uh, led to these long delays and lack of tests. And that's uh, largely been opened up. Although as I understand it, the FDA, FDA is still preventing home testing, which a number of startups have been trying to engage in. So I think that is certainly one area where if it's not fixed, it needs to be fixed. Um, another area that has had uh, government control interfere with it is there's a, I think a pretty compelling argument, at least in so far as I've been able to judge it, that um, rapidly expanding the availability of masks, including to the general public, as one element of social distancing, it would be a very powerful tool, let alone the ability to protect, you know, frontline workers or anybody who's highly um, exposed to the virus. But it's more, it, it, uh, it is successful as inhibiting the spread from somebody who's already infected versus just protecting you from uh, if you haven't been infected. But nevertheless, there's been a lot of government restrictions on the production of masks, and therefore there have been shortfalls in masks. And so, for instance, I recently read a tweet from somebody who said that I've been working on a N95 mask production project. N95 mask is just a kind of uh, medical mask with a team for about a week now. We just got off the phone with the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. They told us that the approval for a new mass production facility in the U.S. will take at a minimum 45 days, but more likely 90. And he ended by saying a lot of people are going to die. Um, now, there uh, was new legislation, I think, that came after this that um, seems to basically say that the, there will not be lawsuits against anybody who's going to move ahead with making these masks. I don't know the details, but certainly that's an area where 
if those haven't been removed, they need to be. Um, one, uh, one general thing, I, I, I had an idea very early on that one of the most valuable things the government could do would just be have a website or hotline where people could report what burdensome regulations were preventing them from responding. And it turns out that now the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago is doing exactly that. So if you are involved in trying to uh, deal with this virus in one way or another, and you're finding that there are government interventions, I think that is a good place to start about just letting the world know. I'm sure if you just uh, Google Booth School, University of Chicago, COVID regulatory pauses, um, that will come up. But I think that's a very high leverage area where we can expand freedom and therefore reduce the threats. Yeah, and there are, there are lots of other examples, and, and I'm certainly eager for any listeners to share any examples you have, because I'll definitely put them in the plan. In terms of what else the government could do, so I think that particularly the government has a role, has a big role in the, the scale of this problem in terms of negative things for a whole bunch of reasons. I think that it's, it's legitimate and emergency for the government to supplement the situation as in encourage the production, but the context has to be, it's allowing human ingenuity to come up with all sorts of solutions. And then it's providing some of the backing to do that more. And it may be, uh, you know, helping businesses, you know, paying them to repurpose production facilities for vital medical supplies. Certainly the whole way workers are being treated. I think that's a whole other subject, which is a really kind of just really unethical in many cases. So we really need to stop that and we really need to help them uh, out. So anything with supplies there, I think is crucial, but it's this, it only works for the government to invest in it if people are, are free to create value. And that's the main thing that's, that's being inhibited. And that's where the in, totally ingenious solutions are going to come from, where somebody comes up with a treatment and it just, nobody even, not even the experts expected it, but it can just dramatically reduce the symptoms of this thing. Like we don't know how that's possible, if it's possible in what time frame. but the only way we're going to know is if people are free to think and to act. And then as consumers, as individuals, as citizens, we're free to judge. And then we should learn a lot of lessons from this about the future that, oh my gosh, what if we were free all the time? Then yes, we would make mistakes just like we make mistakes when compelled by government, just like government makes mistakes, but we would come up with all these amazing innovations that wouldn't otherwise uh, exist. One more note about step four, liberate American ingenuity to massively increase treatment ability. A final aspect of this that I alluded to earlier in the, in the context of information is we want radically increased transparency about hospital capacity. Right now, we just see all these graphs that say, oh, well, in general, the hospital capacity will be overloaded if this many people get the virus on this with this progression. But what you really want to know is, okay, what's the trajectory in your area? Is your hospital overloaded? What's the status of that? Because that can really help uh, guide your behavior. It can also maybe, you, you know, you might even willing to uh, relocate for a while to some uh, other area. I mean, we really want to avoid these situations where hospitals are overloaded. And so one aspect of that, not the only aspect, but is just transparency. So different people, both consumers of healthcare and also producers of healthcare can make intelligent decisions. All right. Step five, help the vulnerable minority protect themselves. So I, the broader theme of this is don't stop living, live smarter. So key to that is to be smart. We need the information. That's why testing is the first thing government should be focused on. 
And then we need treatment, which is why liberating production of treatment is kind of the second thing. But then in terms of just as, as individual citizens, uh, the focus needs to be on being really smart. And part of being smart is for people to take responsibility for protecting themselves based on their own risk pro profile, but also when they're trying to help others, focus on helping the most vulnerable protect themselves. This is been complete, it's been mentioned, but it hasn't been mentioned enough and particularly not in the different kinds of model projections. Like COVID-19 is not an equal opportunity danger. It's overwhelmingly a danger to the vulnerable, especially the elderly. Now you hear reports that, oh, it's a danger to everybody. And that's true to some extent. I have reason to think that when they're talking about younger people, it's mostly very compromised uh, younger people. But I mean, certainly it's overwhelmingly greater for uh, for the more vulnerable parts of the population. And so anything that involves isolate everyone equally is immoral and it is, it is insane. If you want, if you're focused on flattening the curve, the best thing you can possibly do is help older people protect themselves. Uh, because as I mentioned, they are not only the most likely to die, but they're going to be the ones to use by far the most medical resources and overload the hospital. So if you want to buy time, it's, it's helping the vulnerable protect themselves. And if the government is going to do anything, that's what it should be focused on doing things like helping deliver supplies. When I go to the grocery store, there's still older uh, people there all over the place. Now, if this is their dream in life and that's their bucket list to go to Gelson's in Laguna Beach, then you know what? I'm not going to stop them. But if there's anything we can do to really help them uh, protect themselves, what's often called cocoon themselves, that's incredibly beneficial. And it's really a travesty that the overwhelming focus hasn't been on that. And instead it's been on these mindless, these just totally uniform and indefinite, by the way, universal lockdowns uh, on everybody that are not clearly explained and that nobody is even following now, or many people aren't following now. And they're certainly not empowering the elderly. Now, I'm, I think that there is no case, I do not think you should be able to lock down the elderly or the vulnerable by force for some indefinite amount of time. If there's some very specific emergency that you can prove by doing this for a week or two, or if it's like a real quarantine situation. Okay. But like in general, people's lives belong to them. People want to live. And I do not think it's right to take an 80 year old who's, you know, their dream might be, you know, I want to see my grandchild. I don't know how long I'm going to be around. I think it's just completely wrong to say, oh no, but you got to be inside for 18 months. Now, if they need to move to the bottom of the queue in healthcare and they're willing to do that, we should find a way to let them do that. But I really object in this whole discussion to the just total devaluing of living and people being able to live their lives as they choose. And that applies to younger people and that applies to uh, older people. Then step six is go back to work and to school with distancing uh, best practices. So lower risk Americans do not need to stop their lives to dramatically slow the spread of COVID-19. There's just, we've already seen that with even kind of crudely given guidelines without that much explanation, people ha have been willing to voluntarily do a lot. And there's just all, it just, you think about just the things like washing your hands more, avoiding touching your face, keeping more distance, all of these things are huge with regard to transmission. We don't have exact numbers, but just physically, we understand how the virus works, how it travels, how the more you're the volume of exposure matters. All these things mean that we can do low cost, uh, effective 
social distancing measures and get a huge amount of value in terms of slowing down the transmission of the virus without disrupting our lives. And so this is the thing, is to live smarter. And part of the guidance we need from experts is what are the highest leverage things we can do? What are smart ways to do things? And try to figure out smart ways to do everything. Might be even you know a mass event. Maybe you keep people a little farther apart. You don't fill the stadiums as much. But there, you know, we should be trying to figure out ways to do everything, like restaurants, spacing the tables out more. It's totally different to have, you know, make the restaurant modify how they operate versus saying, no, you indefinitely, you cannot operate uh, under any conditions. So I'm very interested from anyone, if, if you have good lists of, hey, what are good best practices? Uh, I had, I, there's a good, inter an interview I thought was good, at least methodologically with Richard Epstein, not Epstein, interestingly, uh, of, on, on the Cato podcast, it was just the one of him. He's in a debate on another one that I haven't listened to, but he, I thought he did a really good job. I don't know if his analysis of COVID is right, but in terms of identifying the methodological flaws of a lot of the, of a lot of the catastrophe predictions. And then also he gave a lot of interesting, good prescriptions. So these kinds of best practices, distancing best practices, hygiene best practices, we can do so much with these and yet not disrupt our lives. So this is this thing is can be a totally potent combination. If we start out with okay, we're going to just get amazing at testing. That's number one, and then we're going to liberate our ability to treat, and then just bring all the human ingenuity there, and that's number two. And then three, we're going to really help the elderly and otherwise vulnerable uh, protect themselves. That's going to be our focus because that's the most efficient way to flatten the curve and to save lives, and then. At the same time, we are going to, you know, we're going to go back to work, we're going to get busy living, but we're going to be smarter. That is an American solution. I think if we do this, we can avoid just the complete literal depression that we're headed toward. And we can even be a safer and healthier and more benevolent country going forward. I mean, this, there's this idea of we're in this together. And I think we can be in this together if we're in this together in a way that allows us to truly live our lives in as much harmony with one another as, as possible. If certain people get to stop the lives of the vast majority of people, that's gonna lead to huge resentment. And even if people feel like they're in this together now, they're not feeling like it when their restaurant is closed, their employer is closed, and then they're just getting you know, a couple of checks from the government. And then how's the government gonna pay those checks? Is it gonna be inflation? There's, there's, no, there's no happy we're in this together if we cannot live our lives and be productive. So don't stop living, live smarter. Uh, I wanna go into some of the other topics, but let me. I wanna ask if you guys have any quick thoughts and then also just encourage, just tell people, I, I'm, I really think this is the right general platform, the right general plan for moving forward. And I'm really interested in people who think they have something to contribute, either general expertise, or maybe you've just studied this a lot and you have good examples. Please share information with me because this is not, this is not the kind of thing like a book on energy where I and my team have all the abilities needed. But I do think that this human flourishing pro living based framework, and also this emphasis on knowledge, uh, on knowledge through testing and transparency, and also on um, on intelligence through freedom to produce, as well as the freedom to judge and deal with threats. That's a perspective we bring that very few people are bringing, but I believe that is the American and the moral uh, perspective. So any comments from you guys? So 
one of the things that I was thinking about, and you touched briefly on it, I think in point four, lessons learned, um, thinking strategically, which is one of the features of the, of the human mind, um, a lot of the things that we did wrong apparently uh, have a lot of lead time. So, you know, producing enough emergency supplies and, um, you know, rapidly changing the number of hospital beds and, and this kind of thing. And usually in, in our systems, these things are optimized to minimize the cost, which makes some sense if you don't have an emergency. But if you can't quickly change this, uh, this is a problem in a crisis like this. So we should really be thinking about, and maybe this warrants a, a, set, a seventh point um, in your list, about what the system should be to take this into account, this experience that we are now having and that we can learn from. And, you know, something like, what, is, what are the problems with a funding model that we can quickly shift resources? Um, you know, what are the problems on the labor market regulations so that we don't, cannot make available quickly the labor force that we need to, you know, take care of the vulnerable elderly or, or something like that? Yeah, I think that's that's true. I may fold the first two points together. I don't like having more than six points in an outline, uh, so or in a plan. But uh, yeah, I think there there should be one. Uh, there should be something like that. All right, let's let's actually just jump in to the next issue, and I want Don to take the lead. Don, I know there are kind of three big stories that you have, and you're going to have to do them all in about ten or twelve minutes. So hopefully, you can summarize them. But so we're now moving toward not the not the issue of, okay, what do we do specifically about COVID-19 in relation to American life, American freedom, but what are some of the uh, energy, you know, we're dealing with some of the energy policy issues connected to it. In particular, there's a movement to, there's been a movement to say, okay, well, now this is the perfect time to impose things such as the Green New Deal or other so-called green energy measures. I know, Don, you had a couple stories about that. Yeah, so here's two of them. So we're recording this on Wednesday the 25th, and it seems that a uh, so-called stimulus bill in the U.S. Ha is, uh, has gotten the go-ahead. And in the lead-up to this, there was a real attempt to use it to extend subsidies for wind and solar. So there's two main federal subsidies for wind and solar. Uh, the, it's called the production tax credit, which is mostly onshore wind, and the investment tax credit, which is for solar and offshore wind. And just as a general matter, the, these uh, subsidies are extremely destructive, um, and not only because they prop up and incentivize to us to use unreliable, expensive forms of energy, the, they actually cannibalize reliable forms of energy. So, I mean, the most obvious way is simply whenever, you know, the producers of wind and solar are getting paid, then, you know, the competitors aren't getting paid. But with the production tax credit, which basically says every time wind is blowing and you're producing energy for it, you get a certain guaranteed amount of uh, tax credit from the government, which is essentially money off your tax bill, um, that makes it so that they can charge below market prices for their energy and even pay people to take their energy and still profit. And so what you're really doing is you, you have all of these people who've made investments, say in a nuclear plant or a coal plant or a gas plant, and they are 
not able to compete with these subsidized forms of energy when those forms of energy are available. And so this makes it really hard to recoup the costs and can actually make a, uh, you know, a coal plant or something unprofitable where it should be profitable. And to make matters worse, that because we're giving preference to this unreliable forms of energy, you're turning down and turning back on, or you're trying to ramp up and down uh, forms of power, coal and nuclear that take a long time to do that. And it's very efficient. And it means that they can't be back online in time to sell energy when, when in solar flag to, re to recoup their costs. So, you know, we've talked about these dynamics somewhat in the past, but at a time when we really need, when the government's saying that we desperately need to take action to save lives, we've seen this attempt to inject this into the so-called uh, stimulus bill. And although it seems that they failed in this case, there's um, an attempt to push it into future COVID-19 aid packages. And I think, you know, just this is part of a larger trend where the Green Movement and its allies have really failed to persuade people to adopt their agenda in many ways. And so they seek to get it by whatever means necessary. We've talked about the ESG movement and the way in which in the uh, keep it in the ground movement has tried to use finance in order to punish and penalize fossil fuel companies. I think this is the same sort of thing where it's not genuinely trying to persuade people to adopt their policies. It's trying to impose them. The, a more radical attempt along the same lines though has been the concoction of a so-called green stimulus. And I won't take you through all the details because what you the, the core thing you need to know is that it's essentially the Green New Deal. Um, it calls for at least $2 trillion of government spending on so-called green jobs and accelerating a so-called just transition to fossil fuels. And it says, now you think if this is a stimulus in the case of an emergency, this would be a one-time $2 trillion, but they call for automatically renewing the so-called stimulus at 4% of GDP or close to a trillion dollars uh, until the economy is fully decarbonized and the unemployment rate is 3.5%. So well, that's uh, <laughs> definitely never. Right. I mean, so that's both, for infinity. But yeah, do they have an upper bound at which, like, once they get it to ten percent or fifteen percent, then they get to stop? Uh, no, I mean the uh, the upper bound is uh, fully decarbonized, um, fully the, unemployed. Right, uh, and I mean the, I mean, what can you even say about this except for, um, you know, that like this is not something. It, it, I'm skeptical of stimulus as a very as a concept. Um, I think that if you're talking about the government just spending money, it's very dubious that that has any positive economic impacts. But this is, I think, an outright obvious case of not just uh, wasteful spending, but outright destruction because you're destroying the energy that we need in order to have a productive economy. And you're doing it at the time in which we most need the energy that gives us a productive economy. And I mean, so that, it's a simple kind of way of thinking about it as, you know, we have a crisis of declining productivity. And then the solution to that is let's make energy way more expensive and make ourselves even less productive. 
I mean, that's, that's essentially what this uh, amounts to. Right. And, uh, you know, I mentioned those stickers by this green group, Extinction Rebellion. And I mean, people have pointed out, and I think this is right, that what we're actually experiencing in many ways is the green ideal in a certain form, which is that we're not transforming the planet. We're not impacting the planet. People have showed maps about how this is reducing, you know, pollution and traffic and things. Like this is the kind of ideal of minimizing our impact. It's not producing, not going to work. And uh, unfortunately, I think we're experiencing how painful that can be for a few days, let alone, and, and it's a few days in a context where we still have lots of fossil fuels providing us with power, which leads me to the last story that I wanted to raise. And that is the way in which we're really experiencing the value of fossil fuels. And, you know, our, our knowledge system really has us focus on how green and renewable our energy sources are. That becomes the kind of standard for evaluating them. And at least occasionally, though, they will give val um, lip service to the value of affordability, such as when they pretend that wind and solar are affordable. But one thing that I think gets totally ignored or minimized is the value of reliability. And we know that reliability isn't guaranteed. We've had moments, and we've talked about them in the show, whether it's the bomb cyclone, the polar vortex, where we have not had or almost not had reliable power when we needed it the most. And in those cases, what's stepped up has always been fossil fuels and in particular coal, because they are the most among the most reliable energy sources that we have, particularly compared to wind and solar, which are completely unreliable. And, uh, you know, I mean, we've talked about the way in which during cold spells, um, wind in particular can uh, wind turbines automatically shut down at certain cold temperatures. But um, I think it's really important to appreciate right now just how bad this would be if we did not have reliable energy. And the fact that we have fossil fuels, I think, has made uh, a, or a painful situation, prevented a painful situation from becoming catastrophic. But even among fossil fuels, I think it's worth noting that, you know, natural gas is amazing and generally reliable. Um, but I think it's coal that really has, you know, stands out because whenever you have a, this very quickly developing uh, situation where it's not clear how much we can travel and production can become very challenging, here's a source of energy that can be stored on site for long periods of time. And so being thankful that we have fossil fuels and coal, which has been, I think, extraordinarily demonized among a demonized set of fuels um, is really important. Whereas this is a moment in which they are continuing to be uh, demonized. For example, we've seen that in um, Cole's been criticized for seeking COVID-19 relief, uh, not asking for special favors, but just there were special taxes that didn't make sense that were imposed on them that they've been, that they asked uh, that certain coal organizations asked be reduced um, back to their 2019 levels. Uh, we've seen that mining was in s several states deemed non-essential precisely in order because uh, there was a- Coal mining in particular. Yeah, there's an animus against coal. And thankfully, I think uh, 
that that has been rescinded at least in many states. Um, but I've certainly had the thought, and I don't think only because you know where we work in this time of like, man, this is this is bad, but it's nothing like what it would be if we didn't have reliable energy. Yeah, I mean the it's really scary that a coal mine is regarded as as non-essential. I mean, if if you're thinking about okay, what are the very basics of life? Like we need to sustain ourselves with food and water and we need to protect ourselves from the elements. Energy, you know, reliable, continuous flow of energy is essential to all of that. So anything you're doing, like anything that involves the electric grid, that needs to just work like uh, clockwork. You know, and anything that involves transportation, that's in particular an oil issue, that needs to continue. So when people are thinking, I mean, if if you think of food as essential and warmth as essential or being or and cooling as essential when it's in the context of it being hot, like if those are essential, uh, energy is essential. And more broadly, if production is essential, if you need to create value to live, then energy is essential. So anything in terms of the whole energy industry, there shouldn't be these essential, non-essential classifications determined by the government anyway. But if, if they are being determined, you need to regard no energy that is essential as the food in the body. Like this is the food of the entire economy and the food of our, our livelihoods. I hope that the different people in the industry are successful in making that case. But as citizens, we should really make that case. So if you see, if you see that kind of thing going on in your state or maybe even proactively say that like do not stop our energy industry at any any phase of it from the mining to the conversion to electricity okay so we've covered now about five topics we've talked about bad thinking methods in COVID-19 we've talked about um, you know plan going forward in terms of don't stop living, live smarter. And then Don has had the three specific stories. Uh, the f and I just want to cover one more thing. And I guess we're almost at power hour and a half. So we're gonna, this is going to be the longest power hour in a while. So thanks everyone for sticking with me. And I hope that in general, listeners are now viewers are enjoying it. But so just one more story. And for this one, I'm going to have to experiment for those of you who are um, watching anyway with Zoom screen share. So let's see how this works. Um, so before I, I get to this, I just, let me let me tell you what this is. So I want to tell you about four projects we have for 2020, and then how I'm hoping that some of you can help out. And so this is going to involve something that we haven't done in many years, which is actually raising money for uh, projects. So and this is called our accelerator uh, program. So let me pull this up. So the idea of the accelerator program was, so the, just a little bit of background on Center for Industrial Progress and, and how it works. The original conception, or at least pretty early on when I was deciding, okay, how can I, I was really thinking about how can I really help clarify energy and environmental issues and also other industrial issues, but mainly I've been focused on energy. Like what's an efficient business model to do that? And I, and I had a lot of reluctance to be a nonprofit because then your primary customer is the donor and it's very hard to be connected with what's actually creating value. So I decided I think we should be primarily for profit because we can write books and give speeches and deliver consulting and that will really allow us to be focused on, on creating value. And that will, that's a good way of making an impact in the world. And I still 
I still definitely believe that. I think being a for-profit business has been in, uh, incredibly helpful in terms of just creating a lot of value and having a lot of influence. But at certain points in that progression, what we found is, hey, there are things we can do to accelerate our progress at, at promoting our ideas that aren't necessarily profitable for us as a business right now, but that could have a big impact. And maybe there are people who love our work who want to support it. So for example, and this is why we started the idea of becoming uh, an accelerator. So I just have a list here of, you know, historically accelerators uh, helped finance my first public debate ever against uh, Greenpeace. Fun fact, Don was my first debate partner and he actually killed me in that debate, which was very disconcerting at the time, but fortunately it prepared me for the real one. Um, my debate with Bill McKibben, uh, some of the crashing of anti-fossil fuel protests, we have given out thousands of copies of the moral case for fossil fuels to students and teachers. And also uh, we got marketing support on the moral case for fossil fuels that helped to become a New York Times bestseller. And I think one of the most influential um, energy books of the, you know, of the last uh, decade. So there have been these situations where, you know, other people who really believed in what we we're doing, they could see it scale more. They wanted to see it scale more. And it didn't necessarily make sense for us as a business since we might not have the money to invest in it. But if others could help us invest, then it would help achieve their goals and it would also help achieve uh, our goals. And so this year, we have four projects where we could really use that help. And then in particular, we could use that help a lot because of the current uh, financial situation, largely in light of COVID-19, but also the energy industry is particularly uh, suffering. So, the, you know, the big projects are, and you can see them on the screen if you uh, are interested, but I'll describe them. So one is uh, on political messaging, we want to provide revolutionary energy and environmental messaging for pro-freedom political candidates. There are lots of candidates at the state level, at the national level that we've talked to. They would love to support energy freedom. They don't have a large budget. Some of them have no budget now, particularly with the crisis. It's hard to get uh, contributions, but they would really use the right messaging. And so uh, I would really like to be able to pay for the team, including these other guys on the call so the, and, and other people, so to help us create really great messaging for them so that pro-energy messages and policies have a greater chance of winning out. Uh, the second thing is national media presence. I, I've been a little bit behind the scenes in the past few years. I think it's really important to get out there and debate with people to speak, to go on shows that are trying to attack me so I can really show that energy freedom is good, that fossil fuels are good, that policies like the Green New Deal are ultimately anti-human. Uh, telling the truth, I just think I as an individual can do a lot uh, but that requires, you know, that requires a lot of time and it requires uh, some expertise. So we're working with getting a top TV booker and some other people to really help uh, me speak out about these issues on a, on a national uh, level. And I should say with all of these, by the way, two things about the accelerator program, they're going to apply to this and apply to everything else. So for the accelerator program, none of the money goes to me personally or goes to overheads. This is not like you're donating to Alex and then Alex gets to live in a nicer house or something like that. Uh, this is, I use this money. I mean, the, the two purposes are research and development. So to develop uh, better stuff long-term and then also for promotion, to spread the ideas wider. And the primary, primary thing we're paying for is to put together the team, both our internal team members, but also really high-level external people to do that. So when you're giving accelerator contributions, again, it's not to me personally, it's not to overhead, it's directly to these very high-leverage people to accomplish these high-leverage 
goals. So the third one, and this one is, you know, we'll have to replace it with something else if, if the COVID stuff continues too badly, but is speaking and debating it at leading universities. The nation's universities are right, are right now a hub of just anti-fossil fuel activism. I had a lot of success last year speaking at a couple high-profile universities, but I really want to debate, take on all comers this year, tape these things, live stream them, promote them, because I am so confident that I'm right about this, that the world needs more fossil fuels, not less. I don't think anyone at this point can really refute that case, but we need to get that case spread. And so by supporting these kinds of efforts, you can, you know, you can really make that happen. One more thing I should say about the accelerator program and our efforts in general is that becoming an accelerator, you'll see there are some really cool rewards associated, but one reward you do not get and that nobody gets is to in any way dictate our um, policy. So it's not that like, oh, you become an, uh, an accelerator and you can say, oh, here's what you should say about coal or here's what you should say about gas. No, nobody has that kind of influence at all. I don't think anyone has even asked for it, but just so you know, that's not, that we're not bought or something like that. And we set things up so that we don't need the contributions to exist. They accelerate us so that even like nobody can have the pressure where, oh, if, if we pull the plug, then you die. So it's just really important for other people to know that. But also if, if you were thinking, oh, I can manipulate you guys into promoting my position if I give you money. No, if you believe in what we believe and what we're doing based on our track record and what we say, then you should definitely accelerate if you have the means to. And then the final one is the moral case for fossil fuels 2.0. And there are, there are a bunch of aspects of this. So Many of you know I've been working on this project for a long time, longer than I expected, probably longer than you expected. And the reason is because I found that with the moral case for fossil fuels original one, that was an incredibly good use of my time. It's influenced thousands, I mean, ultimately hundreds of thousands, arguably millions of people. And I, I always think every minute I spent on making that thing effective was really worth it. Well, it's been five plus years since then. I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about how to frame arguments. I've learned a lot about the facts. Uh, I've learned a lot about how to tell stories. I've learned a lot about how to simplify arguments, make them more retainable. And so what I'm thinking, this is, this is supposed to be the ultimate explanation machine to explain to people why fossil fuels or hydrocarbons are crucial for the future of human flourishing. So I, you know, we're investing a lot of time a lot of money, including bringing in some amazing experts to just create the best possible product. Because as good as the original moral case for fossil fuel was, fuels was it influencing people? Like it wasn't nearly good enough. We have not influenced nearly enough people, but I believe with a book that's five times more effective, we can really change the game. At the same time, so that's expected to come out next year. You could definitely finish it this year and, and your acceleration helps with that but we're also gonna create a moral case for fossil fuels in 2020 essay to that's directly focused on the 2020 elections. And you're seeing today with COVID that the right essay at the right time can have a profound impact. So that's another thing we wanna focus resources on. So those are the, the four big projects at some point, who knows this COVID thing may be another project, but that's these are integrated projects to just really impact the energy policy debate in this crucial year. And I know it's a very difficult time for everybody, so I have no hard feelings at all if you're unable to contribute. But for those of you who are able to contribute, I just want you to think that 
this is a this is a really decisive year. Some of the worst energy policies ever proposed are on the table. The fossil fuel industry is just totally under siege, and there are very few people who can tell the truth about this. And you should not just you should care about this if you're in the fossil fuel industry, but you should care about this just if you're an American or if you're a citizen in the world, because these bad policies would be really bad. But if we continue to have generally good energy policies and we improve them, that's going to make life better for billions of people. That's going to that's going to lead to a continuation of the progress that just makes every year overall uh, better than the last. Or even when we have a down year like we seem to this year, at least we have a lot of sort of reserve ability to survive. So that's the that's the impact that we want to make. And just a couple of quick notes about. Um, the different rewards. I'll just run through them quickly. So there's a whole bunch of, uh, you know, different levels of this, and then you can also give custom contributions. And by the way, the website is industrialprogress.com/accelerate. Industrialprogress.com/accelerate. So I'll just run you through them quickly. I mean, it just ranges from if you want the I Love Fossil Fuels pin, which you may have seen me wear, you can, you'll get five of those when you contribute twenty-five dollars, uh, fifty dollars, a signed and personalized copy of the Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Uh, $100, any energy or environmental question, you can get answered by Don and Stefan, the CIP research team. If you contribute, if you're a $250 accelerator, you can get any question answered by me on Power Hour or the Human Flourishing Project. Um, and now these other ones are at the higher levels. What we're really doing is uh, if you, you know, if you contribute at these levels, what we're actually offering is it, it amounts to like significantly discounted prices on what we would normally charge. And so part of the reason is we want to encourage you to do this, but also part of the reason is that we're at a very abnormal time in terms of our, uh, our business because so much of how historically we've supported our projects and our ambitions is through public speaking and doing high paid public speaking. Uh, you know, my usual rate is 22,000 plus 1500 expenses. Like people, Know, will pay and, and they think it's really valuable and we're glad they do. Like $23,500 to bring me in to speak. Well, COVID, there's no more speaking. So that means hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, you know, that we would normally get and be able to put toward these projects. We're not getting. So I believe in adapting to changing conditions, not just saying, well, I wish it were the same way. Think about how do we make it worth people's while. So one thing to make it worth people's while is just to see, okay, now if you contribute to our uh, accelerator program, then you can get, and so there are a couple of things. There are some things you can do virtually now. So for if you're a thousand dollar accelerator, you'll get a one hour coaching or consulting call with me and that can be any topic. And that's usually something that you know, we charge $3,000 for. Uh, a virtual speech and extended Q&A, that's something we usually charge 5,000 for. You can get that for a $2,500 contribution. And then a live speech, you might say, well, I don't want that, but what we're basically saying is that if you contribute $10,000, then at any point in the next two years, anywhere you want me to speak, I will be there. I'll pay to be there. You just pay the $10,000. So it's a very significant discount. I hope that the rate doesn't go that low ever in the future when, once things resume. But if you really, you know, if you value our mission and you think you might want to have me speak at some place in the future, then this could be a great option. If you value our mission, you don't have a place for me to speak, we'll pick a, a place for you, whether it's a leading university or an organization of your choice. And then finally, uh, for, I mean, you can contribute more than this, but at, at you know, the $25,000 level, uh, you get as, you know, your reward for that, an all-day consulting session, and that can be any topic. It can also be 
coaching session, you know, we'll have, obviously, we'd have to discuss the specifics of that in terms of what you want. It could be multiple speeches to different groups. Any, if you want any details on, on any of this, it's alex at alexepstein.com and feel free to ask me. Just a couple of points of fine print uh, so that you know, I guess I should just say again, industrialprogress.com slash accelerate is the web uh, website. So that contributions to us are not tax deductible for a whole bunch of reasons. I think we are much more effective with money, even if you account for non-tax deductible ability than most nonprofits. You'll have to judge that for yourself, but just so you don't get you know, in trouble with the IRS, you don't get any tax deductions. So I wanna uh, make, clear, make that clear. Also, if you happen to want one of the rewards at a lower level, feel free to ask for that. Each of these rewards goes with just the, the dollar amount that you contribute. It's not one of those things where you get all the rewards uh, below. So if you want a different reward, then you can just separately contribute that uh, amount, or you can always ask for a lower reward. Just want to make sure that we're totally uh, transparent with you. So again, I think that we, I know that for some, I mean, for everybody, this is a, a really hard time. Uh, if you never give us a dime, but I totally, I, I still totally, um, I'm just always so grateful for the amount of support that we get. And I love receiving your emails, even if I'm not always the best at responding. But I know that there are people in this audience who have had a lot of success and who are still, you know, I know I, I can't say anything about anyone's position, but like, this is something, you know, certainly that we believe in, that we invest uh, our time in, and if you and if you really believe in what we do, and really want to see this scale at the right time, at this crucial time, again, when the industry is under siege, when there are so few defenders, when there are people out there, politicians who want to support the industry but can't, if if you want to see more of that, I think this is a, a great investment, and I hope the rewards make it that much more worthwhile. So once again, go to industrialprogress.com/slash accelerate. Okay, wow. How long have we been uh, going? It is over power hour and a half. It is now power hour and 40 minutes. Thank you to uh, Don Watkins and Stefan Henna for joining me this time. It was great to get your guys' input, and it's good to have this companionship. Very interested in what the listeners or the new viewers think of this format. If you don't like it, feel free to tell us. If you like it, feel free to tell us. Just to wrap up, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Along with any ideas you have or any you know, contribution you're willing to make in the intellectual sense in terms of having, in terms of the vision for COVID-19, this idea of don't stop living, live smarter, that I'm really interested in. And then, of course, if you have any questions about the accelerator program or rewards, feel free to email me directly at alex at alex. So that's email me at alex at alexepstein.com. All right, this was a fun one. Uh, there's lots of unfor unfortunately it's precipitated by negative events, but it's still a pleasure to get the opportunity to try to clarify these issues for everyone who follows our work. If you think there are other people who should follow it, please share this with them on YouTube or somewhere else. And one more thing is make sure if you're not on it already, get on the mailing list at alexepsteinlist.com. That's alexepsteinlist.com. 
All right, that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with a lot of topics, probably a lot more COVID and unfortunately more uh, green energy schemes and scams, but hopefully some inspiring stories and some stories of progress as well. Thanks for listening or watching. Until next time, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.